Here's something that I think about a lot. Artificial intelligence is getting more and more sophisticated. Audio chatbots, video chatbots that feel really persuasive, that can pass the Turing test where we can't tell whether we're speaking to an actual person or to a computer, this is becoming more common, more accessible. And at the same time, we're leaving behind, when we die, these really rich digital remains. So what this is adding up to is that after a physical person dies, one could, in theory, for a long period of time, continue to feel for all the world like they're still in communication with an actual person. Why is that important? Why does that matter? What does that mean for our understanding of what it is to be human and what it is to relate? There was a particular person who wasn't able to join my conversation with Adina Harbinya and with Deborah Bassett the other day around these topics, and that's Dr. Morna O'Connor. Morna O'Connor is one of my favorite people. We've been in conversation a long time. Uh, she's a really important part of the death online research community. And this is the kind of topic that we are speaking about today. You're going to have to forgive me because I have some podcasts stacked up. Uh, with death and, the, death and the digital people. And that's okay, because there's such rich territory to be mined in the whole topic of the dead online, digital remains, that is a window, is a lens on so much about what it is to be alive in the digital age. It just tails out and out and out into all sorts of fascinating directions. I'm Elaine Casket, cyber psychologist and author of Reboot, Reclaiming Your Life in a Tech-Obsessed World. And this is me, and Morna O'Connor on the Your Life on Tech podcast. So I am Dr. Morna O'Connor. Um, so I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Aarhus University in Denmark. Um, but I'm based in Ireland, so I call myself a peripatetic postdoctoral researcher. <laughs> Um, and so my focus um, for my PhD and in my postdoctoral work is around uh, grief in the digital age. So grief is my my main kind of sort of focus. Um, and I'm interested in what it's like to grieve um, when we have available to us the sort of vast and various digital bits and pieces that can be left online and on devices and in, in our digital spaces after people die. And that was sort of the focus of my PhD. And now I'm more interested in something a little bit bigger, which is about sort of what is grief in our digital times? Um, how is if grief is something that is fluid and changing and um, changes and is vested in society and culture and time? What is it like now in these sort of digitally saturated times? And that's sort of what I'm studying now in my postdoc in Denmark at the University of Aarhus. Mm. So in 2013, and I think I probably met you in the flesh at some conference or some sort of presentation at a hospice event somewhere, I think yes, as well. That's right. You know, that's right. Yeah. I don't know whether that came before or other, after the other, but of course, since then we've had multiple points of contact, including as members of the Death Online Research Network, which contains all sorts of different academics and professionals. And I was thinking about what you said about how you started from the position of being interested in grief and how it's been expanded. You're still in the grief space, but how mm -hmm. it, it's 
fascinating to me because this has happened for me as well that I started out from the psychological and the emotional and the grief point when I started thinking about death in the digital. And yeah. since then, there's been a big expansion. And there's been a big expansion in the field because yeah. there are all sorts of books coming out about this now. Carl Oman and Patrick Stokes and Deborah Bassett and Dina Harbinia and yeah. all of these people coming out with books reflecting on various aspects of death in our an extremely digital age, psychologists, sociologists, legal yeah. professionals, philosophers, yeah, religious scholars, yes. religious scholars mm -hmm. you know, you name it, uh, mm. computer, computer human interaction people, you name it. <laughs> mm. the, it, it. There's in almost every academic discipline that I can think of, there's some sort of way of hooking in with death and the digital yeah, absolutely. So from the por por ports where we started um, mm. uh, thinking about this, things have really come on a lot. And yeah. why do you think that now is such an important time, which I'm arguing that it is, to be really thinking about this in a much, in a serious and applied way? Mm. Well, I suppose it's, I mean, because we are in such a time of digital saturation and, you know, like all parts of, of our lives and, and, and sectors and um, are, are so intermingled and, and entangled with the digital um, and so much so that it doesn't really make sense to think of it as, you know, on and offline. We are just so, um, you know, we live, we live digitally and therefore it makes sense to me that, are the way we study this the way we study what it is to live and die in technologically uh, mediated you know and entangled environments that that is it's reaching out into all these different disciplines and and interest areas i mean it's, you can see it all over kind of popular culture now you know it's because it is um you know death is is the the great it's common to all of us and now digital death is is you know is arguably becoming the same and we have to, you know, we're developing sort of strategies and understandings and, you know, ways to approach this from all sorts of sectors of, of you know, of, uh, you know, culture and society and academia and all sorts, because it is because of that sort of depth and that sort of, you know, it's reaching so deeply into um, into all of our lives and our deaths, you know, and, and you know, from before we die until all during our lives and right after our deaths. And that's arguably the most interesting part of this, um, this area. And I think the thing that fires the imagination of scholars and, and, you know, people who are writing for fiction and, you know, um, popular culture, film, TV, movies, you see it everywhere. You know, that the idea that we can be revived after we die, the sort of digital afterlife element, that is, it's really something that's, that's, you know, like, um, like, it's something that we as humans are endlessly fascinated by the idea that we can we can transcend death, you know, and that that can be done by technologies is, is an idea as old as time, you know. So this is the new technological kind of horizon. And we're fascinated by how we actually might advance our lives and continue to be, you know, um, alive in ways and continue to to um, have relationships, relationships with, with those who we loved and and so on after we die. And I think that's to me, one of the big areas of fascination and 
and why it's been really um, it's been taken up by so many uh, kind of sectors and disciplines and sort of areas of uh, of interest is is particularly focused on that afterlife element and uh, that's where the the kind of imagination is really coming alive um, around it. As you were talking, I was thinking about something. I was thinking about how it feels like there's a parallel or a common denominator between what we're focusing in on becoming more aware of or attuned to with technologies like artificial intelligence and Mm. digital death, and that it feels like it is honing our attention in on what is it to be human? What is it to, what does it mean to relate? What are the particularities of being human? Um, Mm. Because with AI, we're thinking, okay, so if this is possible through technology and technology can do all that, then what makes me uniquely human? What is that? Mm. With continuing to connect with somebody's digital remains online, perhaps somebody with whom you related a lot via uh, technology before that person died, there's this question of, well, what is it to really relate? What are we relating to when we are communing with some sort of digital entity? You know, mm-hmm. what, where is the humanity in that exchange? Where do we find yes. that? How do we experience that or perceive that? Mm-hmm. And so it feels like with people leaving behind these really rich digital remains, and then also with AI, we're asking some, we're kind of without realizing it, focusing on some similar questions mm-hmm. to do with humanity and to do with human to human relating. And when you combine artificial intelligence, artificial capable or artificial general intelligence with mm. digital remains mm. that represent somebody who has once walked the earth and had opinions and ways of speaking and expertise and so forth, yeah. then you get to these sort of supercharged questions yeah. of what it is to live, what it is to be human, what it is to be conscious, what it is to relate. Yes, yes, absolutely. And does it does it matter if there isn't like a referent at the core, if there isn't a living referent at the core? And if what is being generated is based on not the actual individual, but um, material, you know, a corpus of material based on what they've said during their life. And it is generating new material because if I mean, we're all generating new material as living beings. Right. So if that's just being generated by another platform that isn't our minds, but is a you know a simulation or a, um, a proxy for it, does that make it less or more real? I mean, these are the questions, you know, um, and I think that that question about realness and authenticity is a big kind of um, a preoccupation. You know, like I think a lot of what's quite interesting around, um, you know, there's the sort of various media reactions to AI recreations of people who have died. And that's, you see that kind of tug of war between like, you know, is it okay for Edith Piaf to voice her own biopic, you know, because it isn't really her and she didn't really speak the words, but actually, you know, if those around her or those who are managing her estate are rubber stamping and saying it's okay, but she never had a say in it. And so all this sort of like, where who is the real Edith Piaf and would she have said this was okay you know and would she have said these words you know it's really interesting um or or is it actually about like this you know the people who are who are um left over and their opinion is there is the one they're the ones who can rubber stamp and say this is okay um and you know we have like many many examples of this happening and um uh you know instances where like um 
I believe there's a an Israeli um, company, AI company, who developed um, a hologram version of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and apparently her um, hologram, or is it a hologram, or anyway, some some simulation via technology, anyway, and that apparently uh, she was giving uh, this sort of a version of her was um, giving opinions on legal issues, and apparently her clerk was saying, you know, actually this really runs against what she would have actually said in life, and doesn't tally with her actual opinion. But there you you know you're coming so like does that come to like this this particular clerk's idea of what Ruth Bader Ginsburg would have said and where is the real where is the sort of like can we can we speak to a a a definitive and absolute version of a person that we can replicate replicate and who says whether or not we've reached that you know and I think that's also quite interesting around like when you come when you think about grief theory actually um a lot of what grieving is 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 about sort of uh a creative narrated version of the person who has died, not a direct replica, not an absolute, like, you know, one-to-one simulation, but actually a version that maybe shores up my idea of myself as a bereaved daughter or, uh, you know, or, or as a parent or not wanting to remember certain things that they might've said or a certain mannerisms or a certain, you know, ways of speaking. Um, but actually developing a sort of, um, you know, magpieing out the bits of that person that I sort of want to remember and 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 pass on and 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 so on, rather than like a kind of fluorescent lit absolute version of who they were, right? So like this idea, this kind of arms race to directly simulate the dead, um, to to whatever extent, if if we could actually directly and really simulate people in the first place, you know, but actually that we might need that that actually might be a good thing or something that's what people want, you know, it's just really fascinating. Well, this accounts for so much of the individuality of grief because it's a direct reflection of the individuality of relationships and the individuality of perception of a person. You Mm. might be able to mass produce or replicate a table or a chair and one table looks pretty much like another table and is experienced similarly by the people who are eating at that table. But with people, it's quite different. And we, I was thinking as you were speaking of Irving Goffman, the psychologist, the sociologist yeah. Irving Goffman talking about this uh, presentation of self in everyday yeah. life. And mm-hmm. one of the things he was talking about is how we may present ourselves differently to different audiences and we're attuning ourselves to different audiences in different ways. We might have a core of personality through or a core of style through, but mm-hmm. also we're presenting differently and then we're being perceived and remembered differently because yeah. our memory fills in gaps according to our own preferences or beliefs or yeah. learning or experiences. And so we are experiencing ourselves, our other people differently than the next person. I remember, yeah. I'm trying to remember who it was. I think it was uh, Hans Kohn, who was a psychotherapist and he was a student of Heidegger and he was yeah. a really amazing man who wrote a lot about psychotherapy. And he said, talking about how individual the client therapist relationship is, he Mm. said, um, the client you meet is the client who meets you. There is no client as such. Mm. Yes. So the client that comes to me as a psychotherapist is different, quote unquote, than that same person going to be a client of the other therapist, because it's all in the in-between. It's yes. all in the relationship. So you're right. How can we then say, oh, this person is replicable? Yeah. You know, can you apply the same digital 
qualities of replicability, scalability, searchability, all those things yes. to persons. Yes. When you have this it. subjective element. Yeah, that's it. I mean, if we're all constructing each other all the time and we're all sort of in this becoming our sense of dialogue with each other as we're interacting and there is no, what's that? Is it Winnicott? There's no such thing as a baby. Yeah. Right? There's so no such thing as a baby. Yeah. So like exactly. that, that, that sense of the construction of the baby and the, the construction of each other through dialogue. Um, and I guess I'm thinking of Mikhail Bakhtin, that kind of he's a, a Soviet literary um, scholar um, and his idea of like this sort of how we th- our relation to each other and how we construct the world is it's in, in dialogue. So we're always in dialogue with each other, in dialogue with past others who we've met and future others and the sense of um, there is no individual self that is unified and absolute, but we're always in the becoming of each other. So you're creating me, I create you. There's, you have a surplus of seeing of me and I have a surplus of seeing of you that you don't have. So there's a sense that I know I, I have an idea of you and a construction of you in my mind based on our, my interactions with you that you don't necessarily see yourself. And that's sort of surplus of seeing. So there's an individual, there's, a, there's an Elaine for Morna that there is that is absolute, that that's individual and idiosyncratic and is changing. And yes, in, a, exactly. in, in a sense of becoming all of the time. Um, so the idea, I mean, when you bring, when you boil all that down into some sort of sense of replicability, of simulation, of, you know, copying, like making a sort of facsimile of a person, you know, that's, it becomes quite absurd actually as an idea. But I, I suppose also there, there, you know, there are, you know, people who have reported, you know, feeding text messages and Facebook messages into chat GPT. And, you know, from the, a person from the mother who has died and having, you know, a, a conversation, a, a two way exchange that does something, who means something or doesn't. Or, you know, so, I mean, this is even though we might have our um, we might sort of um, theorize about it and bring it into all sorts of um uh yeah intellectual constructions it also is something that's happening in the world and and has some resonance and there is some there's a lot of um sort of excitement about it and it's something that like in the past it was only available to people who had very complex you know simulation or you know ai enabled technologies to do this but actually now with chat gpt and other kind of um language generation um platforms that you can actually do this feed material feed you know feed um source material in it and get something out um Mm. that does um that approximates a conversation with a person dead or dead or not you know for sure Uh, and and yet (laughs) whether i were going to use chat gpt or whether i were going to have a subscription to project december which Mm -hmm. explicitly holds itself out as doing that as feeding Mm -hmm. into uh it a chat with people your message thread with someone and replicating that conversation if I were to feed what I have access to into one of these things, say, for example, messages with my sister, well, mm. if I instead were to feed in the messages between my sister and her husband or my sister mm. and her business partner, mm. <laughs> I might sort of recognize my sister, but not to the same extent as I would if I used our conversations, to your point, that there's yes. this uniquely constituted mm. relationship, style, rhythm in the relationship. Mm. And yeah, when, when when Winnicott said there's no such thing as a baby, he said there's always a baby and someone. And mm. so it's all there. And that's what, that's what we are grieving when we grieve, it's not so much the person per se yeah. as though it's somehow this entity. 
but the relationship and that in between and that specific idiosyncratic bond Mm. with all of its qualities. And I think this is one of the things that we really run up against this idiosyncrasy when we start evaluating things that you and I have talked about so much and that you've looked into so much, which is the stages of grief or other really fixed notions of the grief process, capital T G P. Talk to me a little bit about that. Obviously we've had this conversation loads, but um, yeah, yeah, let's Uh, get into it. Yes. I mean, people probably, you know, if you, unless you've been living under rock, you've probably heard of the stages of grief and, you know, they're often, you know, touted as that, as these stages uh, in a sort of absolute way, but actually how they came about was um, Austrian uh, psychologist, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, um, she did a, a study with um, 40 or so Austrian um, terminal cancer patients and, you know, from interviews with them, um, with dying people, she she came up with these sort of five stages of of dying. And she wrote a book called On Death and Dying in 1969, um, in which she articulated these five stages. And the stages are um, DABDA, so D-A-B-D-A, denial, anger, um, bargaining, depression and acceptance. Um, and so even though the book was about um, uh, dying and not grieving, um, somehow the stages sort of became transferred and taken up into stages of of grieving. Um, and they were never intended as that. And they were never intended. And um, Kubler-Ross has said herself in later writing that she never intended them, even when they were stages of dying, she never intended them to be sort of like neat experiential parcels that you would you know work through in this sort of sequence, fixed sequence. But it, they've really become that. And you know, we see them everywhere. They, they're in, um, you know, uh, medical textbooks and, and sort of um, we see them across popular culture. There's, you know, uh, a recent example was in Afterlife and that um, Ricky Gervais um, Netflix series about his grief for his his wife who has died. And, and he cites the, the stages of grief in, in the third um, season in an otherwise really beautiful, actually, and, and very careful um, depiction of grief, I would have I would have thought. But it just speaks to how deeply ingrained in the culture they are, um, you know, and again, like there's very little um, um, actual data or empirical evidence to support the stages. You know, some people can find the idea um, useful, of course, and there's nothing, nothing to say that if they're useful for anybody, that they're wrong. Absolutely not. Your grief is your own. But more to say that when they are taken up in that very linear prescriptive, like you do this and then this and then this, people can really get caught up in, you know, the idea that, that they're doing it wrong, that they should be, you know, they shouldn't be lingering too long at this stage or that, or that, you know, and also policing each other's grief, other people's grief based on it. You know, you shouldn't be there anymore. You should be here and so on. So they've, they've actually, there's a lot of evidence, research evidence to say that they can be quite destructive and harmful when people are, are subject to these sort of ideas about this blueprint that they are or aren't enacting and others are or aren't enacting properly. Um, and what's really interesting is that in um, or part of what I'm doing my postdoc now is looking at the sort of revival of these, these stages. So like, again, really debunked and coming from a study about dying and not grieving, we are seeing them in... For, for instance, this sort of current guidelines on the NHS website about grieving cites them. Um, they're also on the website of the UK's um, bereavement charity Mind, or, um, sorry, mental health charity at the moment. And they're also 
the um the website of um uh, webmd so the sort of 130 million uh, monthly visitors in the in the US huge um health information website cites the stages and is as sort of as writ as law as absolute um and so like this idea that like on online we're seeing them not only just in health organizations but really in kind of popular culture it's a really interesting example which i really love is that um People might remember um, in The Simpsons, Dr. Hibbert talks Homer through the stages, but they're actually about stages of dying when he so it's, you know, Homer's after eating a it's some sort of poisonous fish. And so Dr. Hibbert's talking through the stages, but he, so they're actually about stages of dying. So, so they actually got it right. The Simpsons. Yeah. And you give another example in a blog post you wrote recently about the Adult Swim series, Robot Chicken, and there's yeah. a giraffe sinking in quicksand and the giraffe goes through yeah. them. But you're saying <laughs> these are two portrayals that actually got it right. Yeah. They're about the dying yeah. rather. And we say right. Yeah. But of course, what we're talking about with Elizabeth Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's study was 40, 40 individuals culturally yeah. homogenous yes in austria yes. um and one of the things that you and i were noticing when we were looking at some different guidelines when we were writing a chapter about this yes. is when we went to the guidelines for the national health system in australia those were yes. much different than yes. the guidelines that we were seeing in some of the english institutions that you you mentioned but yes. what you're referring to here is such an interesting example of how ideas, conceptions, misconceptions, misconceptions they, yeah. whatever, can proliferate online mm -hmm. and be concretized online. Because when I think about when I did my journalism degree, for example, this was way back in, you know, it was in the 1980s, I did a journalism degree and there wasn't any internet. Yeah. And and so journalism involved going out and working the sources and being on the beat and drawing on mm -hmm. such different sources of information. And mm -hmm. now we have this situation where often some journalism, not necessarily investigative journalism, but some journalism involves sitting and looking at what you can find online yeah, from absolutely. people posting on social media or other things like this. And then mm -hmm. and, and so and so it's and it's so increasingly in an age of AI and AI generated things also hard to discern mm. the reliability of information. So it's so easy yeah. for yeah. ideas about anything, even research, psychological research or yeah. concepts of grieving to be proliferated online, <laughs> even by quite high level. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think there is something about like, not just that it's a Teflon theory and manages to sort of keep being proliferated. But I mean, I think that also it's it says something about the 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 content of the theory, like because it is like a, you know, simple pain by numbers way to get from something really dark to something to the light. You know, it's it's a way it's a sort of promise, you know, it's a comforting fiction of like, it's okay, just do this thing, this, these five things and you'll get through this. And we have this, I mean, even though to me, it says something that it's been so, it's it's a complete misrepresentation of the original research, which itself wasn't even about the thing that's, that they were talking about. But the fact that it is so deeply ingrained, I mean, it, to me, it's there's more. It says something about like, we have this magnetism to like having you know, human experience is so complex and so varied and grief is can be so difficult and so um, volatile and so difficult to predict. Um, and that, I, you know, I think that the, the, the promise and the magnetism of this 
it's okay, you'll be all right, you'll get through this, that that is just, it, it sort of regurgitates in the culture because we're really drawn to it because mm-hmm. it's, it's, um, it's like a snake oil, you know, it's, it's, it's a promise. And even if we don't believe it, I think we kind of want to believe it. And that's why we see it again and again. And what's interesting about those, um, the Simpsons example and the robot chicken one is that even though they're both actually about dying, so actually, you know, in, in inverted commas, got it right or relate to the theory that they're actually, you know, riffing on that actually all of the like YouTube videos and the fan pages and the pop culture wikis and the discussion boards and the articles and memes, low all this like ecology riffing on it, on those two Simpsons and the robot chicken, they're all about the stages of grief, even though the originals aren't. So it's like, it's like we just slide back over into the comforting fiction, even if it's not actually there. <laughs> yeah. And the promise and the comforting fiction and the idea of X, Y, Z leading to solution this has a big parallel for me with the technological utopianism or the promise of technology, which is that there can be a solution to pretty much all human discomforts, inconveniences, diseases, diseases, and there's Mm -hmm. a technological solution. And we see this combination, I think, in examples, one of which you refer to in this recent blog post, which I'm going to link to in the show notes as well, Um, of virtual reality approaches, sometimes therapies or virtual reality games Mm -hmm. that are for grief, for example. So Mm -hmm. the example you gave was of a virtual reality platform called Five Days, which is a virtual reality, quote unquote, game for bereaved people. So each of those five levels corresponding to a grief stage. So this psychoeducation or support at each stage of the virtual reality game And Mm -hmm. so we were seeing an explosion or proliferation of virtual reality approaches or treatments for things from PTSD to anxiety to specific phobias. And sure, yeah, for sure, virtual reality can be useful in exposing people gradually to feared situations to allow Mm -hmm. them to acclimate to them, which is a super useful application of VR to a particular psychological issue. To grief, however, the translation into that, this is perhaps a little bit trickier for a variety of different reasons. But yeah, you see this sort of, here's the technological utopianism solving every problem for us, including, quote, problems that I would argue are not problems, such as the fundamentally human experience Mm -hmm. of loss and grief, which is the price we pay, of course, for love. Love, yes, yeah. And that's it, I think it it does tap into... And, you know, older ideas that where grief was sort of, you know, at the start of the um, the 20th century when, you know, Freud treated, uh, you know, had a framed grief as a sort of um, analogy to um, melancholy. So like depression. So like he was talking about depression, but he talked about grief in relation to depression. So it sort of brought grief into this idea that it's like it's a pathology and it's a disease and we can treat it in the same way. And it has symptoms and, you know, um, and, you know, it makes sense then that, you know, fast forward to now that we're still, we have the sort of hangover or the the relic of that is still with us. We see grief as a problem or something to be, you know, uh, something with, um, uh, that we need to solve, you know, rather than like, as you say, something that is um, the normal res- human response to the loss of someone significant um, um, not to be solved and not to be, you know, uh, we need, we don't need to find some, some solution for it, but actually, that, you know, I think it, it's definitely like a, a relic of that thinking that we have, 
you know, in, in the 20th century, we had lots of um, grief um, um, uh, kind of practice methods to try and bring people through grief and, and sort of um, like allegories to um, finding some sort of finding symptoms for grief and then finding um, therapies and um, uh, modes of uh, kind of grief therapy, therapy modes, I guess, to try and bring people through grief and out the other side and therefore to kind of solve it by, you know, X or X or Y intervention and arguably closure, like, closure, yeah. achieve yeah, closure, exactly. achieve closure. And again, the comforting fiction, you know, it's okay. You'll be all right. You'll get over here. And I would argue that like many of what the, many of the technologies we're seeing now have are sort of the, the newest, the sort of, you know, the, 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 the bleeding edge of that thinking that is there now, which is like, Hey, there's this problem called grief and we can solve it with this VR game or we can solve it with whatever it is and um, the intervention. And often I think it, again, I suppose I'm very keen to always come back to, and that's understandable, you know, like, you know, it's easy to, for me, I think for a long time, I thought, Oh God, it's, it's, it's quite simplistic thinking actually. And it's, it doesn't really map onto what grief is, but actually it's, it's driven by a will to help people and to, to minimize and limit and curtail this thing that is that can be devastating you know so yeah. it's that it's um but there's also that 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 really important line to be told actually that we don't end up you know suggesting through games or vr tech you know um vr ai hologram whatever technologies um that they're that we don't again bring in you know stages of grief or other very sort of normative we would say ideas about grief that it must be done in a certain way that we don't kind of again you know regurgitate the ideas you know these really old debunked ideas through these new technologies again and I would think that like my kind of uh as you were saying as you're speaking there earlier is thinking of like you know it might be that um if we were to use AI technology or sorry, um, if we were to uh, create simulations of people who had died based on the sort of corpus of what they've created during the course of their life, as we were talking about earlier, that that could be, you know, if you had financial motivations that you could, you could do that as a company, you could develop an AI version of a person, sell that to people. And that could be, you know, uh, driven by an understanding of grief as in stages right so like this idea that like if we are going to sort of um, monetize grief or bring it into sort of a format where that we can sell to people it's probably not going to be based on a really deep and complex understanding of grief but more but more the, the more easily available and versatile and replicable one like the stages mm. you know? so it's just like the kind of the the sort of um economic um kind of uh um driver and the the architecture of of digital environments means that we we're maybe more likely to see um kind of more uh, older ideas that are simplistic um and versatile and subject to kind of replication like the stages of grief that that's i can i can see why it's being kind of uh uh why it's something that people are attracted to in design and and yeah. <laughs> well, one of the well, one of the solutions essentially that's being proposed or put about now for grief with AI, with the possibility of simulation, continuation, increasingly persuasive, believable, rich representations of persons, mm. 
One of the solutions being proposed is that you don't have to really experience the loss in the first place, because what we're going to do is we're going to take the simulation from the point that the physical person left off so that there isn't anything to miss, that there's a continuity and you can somehow indefinitely postpone the experience of loss in a more striking, mm-hmm. thoroughgoing way, because there's this simulation to carry you forward from here. Mm-hmm. And so one of the proposed technological solutions for grief essentially being put out there is that you don't have to experience it in the first place because mm-hmm. you never actually really lose the experience of being in relation with mm-hmm. this person. And mm-hmm. so, and so that's not how it, and so it, it's, mm-hmm. it's, nobody's saying you don't have to experience loss or what, but it's almost, I feel like that's the underpinning implied promise that uh, just like with all technologies that are trying to eliminate, I was thinking about the phrase pain points, how in design and in development uh, and in platforms and services, the developers are always trying to eliminate pain points from a consumer thing. What is a pain point? It's an annoyance. It's an aversive experience. It's a feeling that doesn't feel good. Everything's supposed to be really smooth and pleasant and immediate and all that kind of stuff like that. And so it kind of feels like, yeah, it just kind of feels like one of the ways of eliminating the pain point, quote unquote, of losing somebody is just to not. Yeah, yeah, not to go to the first place, yeah. In the first place. I mean, doesn't it come back to a larger, you know, idea that like human, you know, we come back to distilling down to what human um, being (laughs) involves, right? So that we can and might reduce or or, um, take out suffering and that that suffering is bad, that there's nothing to be gained, you know, that it's, it is excisable from human experience. And where, if we can design it out, great. Yeah, right. like I like that. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. and I'm, yeah. Does that stand up? <laughs> yeah, Does that really stand up. And mm-hmm. and and also like, I mean, I think it's a it's quite a reductive um, understanding of of what it is to be human. You know, and there's lots of research actually around grief as um, really cathartic and um, bringing about you know. Um, deepened social connections, um, change you know changes in in relationships to 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 oneself and each other, other people who are who are grieving, and 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 big sort of um, understandings of um, um, kind of you know the dark night of the soul, like it kind of brings about fresh understandings and fresh motivations, fresh um, energy for one what one might do in in that you know in the kind of in the understanding of of mortality and and death that there is a as there's a kind of renewed energy and a new a renewed um uh yeah social connections and so on and and you know people big, make big life changes and or have um all sorts of you know quote unquote positive things come from suffering and pain in all sorts of guises i mean the buddhists would say that's the, the sort of one of the you know founding <laughs> understandings of uh, of buddhism is that like you know suffering is inbuilt to to um humanity and human being and and to, to to deny that is to always be in greater suffering because it's inbuilt <laughs> you know yeah. so I think it's, it's really it's uh again I think we're back to comforting fiction you know when you know but but I understand that it's because people are you know it's <laughs> people are 
we we want to evade our suffering and we will probably buy things that will help us to do that. <laughs> and yeah. you know, it, it's smart for corporations to have with financial motives to want to sell us ways out of. <laughs> and also, I think, you know, the, the, the pain points thing, you know, it's also because these you know, corporations and, com- and companies want us to stay on their platforms. You know, Facebook don't want us to see notifications of somebody who has died on Facebook or, you know, a, a birthday in, um, reminder for somebody who has died on Facebook. And that's not just because they care about us, but also because they want us to stay on their platform, you know. So it's yeah. it's like the motivations are. Yeah. Well, although of course that's complicated as we've discussed before, because there's an assumption being made there that there are going to be things that are aversive and things that are not aversive to people who are in grief. And so birthday notifications, it's deemed that's something that needs to be careful because that's going to be an aversive experience. Well, some people, some mourners might be absolutely gutted when the birthday notifications go, or that might be quite important to them. And so again, back to the, back to the idiosyncrasy. I mean, one of the things that's fascinating fascinated me and I wondered if you had a comment on it is the extent to which over time as we've handed over responsibility for so much else I suppose mm-hmm. to some of these platforms mm-hmm. we have somehow implicitly handed over responsibility for digital remains or for safeguarding digital remains to some of these platforms that were never designed to that purpose. Mm -hmm. So witness the outcry, for example, when X formerly known as Twitter has made various uh, policy changes or proposed doing calls of inactive accounts, which would include the accounts of deceased persons. Mm -hmm. And people get really exercised about this, although that's a moral wrong that Mm -hmm. there are digital remains on this platform form and they need to be the company needs to treat those with a particular measure of respect and essentially look after them and by extension the experience of the people associated with those or caring with those digital remains mm. i think this is so interesting our unshouldering of responsibility onto some arguably entirely unsuitable platforms for the safeguarding mm. and perpetual care of digital remains what are your thoughts about that yeah i mean it's certainly I, I suppose it's, you know, partly because we um, when we sign up to these things, we don't have a, an understanding or a sense that actually this will relate to such big, you know, existential questions. But I think, you know, certainly it's that's something we've seen all over, like in the last 10 years, so many, you know, media outcries for for me, for tech companies to to take action and to do something because, you know, X or Y can't access material relating to somebody who has died. And it's real you know, there's a real kind of um, disdain and distaste for tech companies who don't step up and quote unquote, do the right thing. And, and um, but, I, you know, I think it really is interesting. I, I suppose it's something that uh, um, I, I, I guess another point around it is that like, you know, if we are expecting, it's like there, there's a kind of a, 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 almost like they're in the charitable sector, like they we're expecting tech companies to just hold our data, um, uh, you know, indefinitely. And there's a, there's a cost to that. And there's also, you know, a, there's a environmental cost to that. So we're, you know, there's um, mass amounts of data um, relating to intermingled with, you know, those of the living with, you know, those who have died. And um, we have currently like no, no, no plan for, for um, sort of excising or, or getting, having something, uh, a plan for a material relation to, to people who have died and, we can't expect tech companies to shoulder that expense, both for the, the storage and for the the kind of um, you know ecological impact. I think the, the idea that they might just um, do that indefinitely, um, when you know dead people don't 
um, buy ad, they don't you know click on ads and they don't they don't do the things that the companies need for them to do in order for them to to, to kind of to um, you know to keep um, um, alive <laughs> or t- rather to keep storing that information in- indefinitely. So, I mean, it makes- isn't that interesting? You're like, keep alive, keep storing. It's almost <laughs> like you're, you said first yeah. keep alive and then you corrected yeah. yourself and said, keep storing. Yeah, keep storing but but yeah, yeah. isn't that yeah. interesting that you just said mm-hmm. that, that, that it's almost as though we've come to think of the continued existence and accessibility mm-hmm. of digital remains Mm -hmm. online or wherever we can get at them as a sort of being kept alive, which is to the point we were talking about earlier, that there's something Mm -hmm. fundamentally human about that, that we see as a kind of aliveness. Yeah. Yeah. I I guess it's, um, that, that sense of, um, I think from my research around like speaking to people who do access material, um, after somebody has died and, and that can be in all sorts of guises and, and the, the kind of variability of that is, is, is really, is really wide. Um, but like, I can understand the sense of, um, loss that can be, um, experienced when people under, you know, people read that Elon Musk is going to cull, you know, <laughs> 10 years worth of, um, um, uh, material relating to people who have inactive accounts on Twitter. I can understand that, that huge sense of, of, of loss but also there's also a sense of relief that that can exist with that you know people ex- you know have also described in the course of my research um relief at somebody else making the decision about mat- material being taken away and that it is often you know there's this misconception that ma- that material relating to somebody who has died is unilaterally you know, comforting and positive and it is not you know some people you know there's not only what can be visible or what we can find out about the, the life and the the you know the interests and tastes and motivations of the person who has died, but also what we find out about ourselves and others around us through looking at material. And you know, there's loads of ex- um, examples of people who found out found out about embezzlement and affairs and all sorts, you know, and and also their their understanding of themselves as not having been there or having whatever the, the sort of guilt that might come in around various things. So it's I suppose the sense of um, Material's ongoing importance is not singular or unilateral. No. Either. <laughs> and in fact, looping around to a point we were discussing earlier about the idiosyncrasy of relationship, one of the things that you're talking about there is the discomfort of seeing or realizing that the person that you knew was different person to different people, yeah. that other pe- people might have experienced them in different ways, that they may have presented in different ways to different people, shown different facets of themselves mm-hmm. that you didn't see or that you didn't know. So accessing this material can Mm. interfere with what is sometimes an instinct for people, which is to form for themselves that durable biography that Tony Walter, Professor Tony Walter talks about, that they can carry forward comfortably of that person. This was that person. This is how they were. This was our relationship. And there's that story. And that story may be different for each person. But then Mm. if a person accesses all of this whole wealth of things, they get to see something that's actually more true. and more complete about humans and human nature, which is that there are all these different relationships potentially and different facets. And that doesn't always feel comfy or easy. Yeah, that's it. It's like, you know, looking behind the curtain and and we don't, we don't always know what we're going to see. And I I mean, there's, I've had a, in my research, I spoke to a woman who lost her sister, whose sister died. 
And, you know, she talked about not wanting to look back at text messages that they um, exchanged for the view of herself that it might give her because she felt like what she said was a shit sister. You know, I wasn't there. I I know I was cruel to her at times, you know, and, and so on. A whole carousel of fears and guilts and possibilities that really she didn't want to look at to have that understanding, not just not just what you the version of that the, the person who has died not only the versions of them that you don't know and that you mightn't want to have you know close encounters with but also versions of yourself and what other people think of you and you know I spoke somebody else in my research spoke about um accessing the um, whatsapp on the person who's died on their phone and searching for their own name within whatsapp so looking at whatsapp and then not not within a particular messaging um, conversation, but WhatsApp fully. You can search the whole app for your name being mentioned and looking at like it's like a a roast, you know, <laughs> of what people say about you. And, and this sort of sense of, my God, I didn't know they thought that. And and I think it's interesting, too, you were saying about like, you know, it gives us a sort of a truth about them about the you know looking well, at the truth about humanity that their right. people are multifaceted it's exactly. not that you didn't exactly. know them it's yes. that you knew this facet exactly and the facet that they and you know what it's really important to to always remember that like digital technologies and our interactions with them and our our enactments and our communications on them are just one tiny slice of life but it can it can become so blown up into like you know everything they said on whatever because <laughs> it's preserved yeah, it's in it's quote preserved. unquote black and white you know yeah, it's it's definitely. there and it's fixed yeah and it can assume a greater truth value or yeah. a greater apparent objectivity yes than some of the more fleeting ephemeral interactions of which there are increasingly fewer now that weren't captured yeah. uh, yes. and so mm-hmm. and, it, and it and it's these little snapshots and yeah. depending on your fears your mm. desires whatever yeah. you can see a particular snapshot as larger than life or representing, I was thinking a little bit connected to this, but also picking up some threads of what we were saying earlier. We were talking about people's reactions or judgments to other people and how they seem to be experiencing or uh, going through their grieving process. And I was thinking about how judgments about other people's grief including whether they're conforming correctly to grief stages, imagined grief stages. Mm. And then I was thinking about judgments about people's use of technology mm. and uh, and certain ways of relating to technology, including with AI and mm. judgments about that and the sort of morality in each of those. And mm. I was thinking about, for example, how reactive, judgmental people may get if we combine those things and saying, oh, so-and-so is perpetuating their partner using mm. chat GPT or Project December. Mm. And uh, that means that they're not accepting or that they are in denial or that they're not whatever. So there's this merit, there's this double yes. dose yes, yes, yes. of moral judgment <laughs> involving yes. technology and grief. Yeah, yeah. Together um, at last. <laughs> together at last, yeah. Um, but, you know, so in much the same way, it, it, it's, it's so interesting all this morality around this, this sort of neo Luddite morality around. And it's getting more acute with AI, where people are saying, "Oh, um, I hope you can get an A." You know, loners, lonely people can get an AI girlfriend or an yeah. AI boyfriend, and isn't that 
sick yeah. and isn't that twisted? It isn't that terrible. Or yeah. um, someone is perpetuating their loved one with uh, an AI or, uh, you know, kind of representation or an advanced chat bot. And isn't that terrible yes. because denial, non-acceptance, et cetera. Yes. Or, yes. yeah, I just find that really interesting how we are, even if that person who is formerly lonely and is now feeling more fulfilled in their life through their relationship with their AI girlfriend slash boyfriend, mm. or even if the person is absolutely fine and deriving something that they value from a continued conversation with somebody that has died, yeah, you know, still the peanut gallery looks and says, oh, well, <laughs> because that's technologically mediated, yeah. that's not that, that that can't be good can yeah it? yeah yeah it's so true that it's just like a it feels like grief is just such a a norm sink like we're all like we're I mean we're engaged in norms and, and norms can be good too I mean we have cultural norms exist for reasons and and there's yeah. it's not like a cultural norm of not killing people or the right. cultural I mean, norm <laughs> of not walking up and smacking somebody across the face these are these are good yeah, norms yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Our, our, my next blog post is about how bad how uh, you know <laughs> unhelpful those are <laughs> Um, you know, I, I guess like it's something that you know it can be useful for people like in in times of grieving to have some sort of understanding of like this is this is what happens around here and have some sort of roadmap or some sort of mm. sense of um, what the people uh, I know and around here do. But it's when that becomes sort of fixed and formulaic and and policed and a, a basis for a judgment that, that it becomes a problem. But I think that's really interesting that like they they do come they they not only is grief sort of a norm thing, but I think it they especially come alive when technology is involved because there is so much we don't know what to do with it, and we have a sense as you know people who are you know, born into an, into an analog world and who are becoming digital, that we probably inherently have a sense or it maybe there's a, a a reflex around it being creepy or we don't quite feel, doesn't feel right. It, you know, uh, you know, not to all of us, of course, and not not to, you know, brush, um, you know, use broad, too broad a brush. But, you know, I think there's, I think there is that, it's important to have that perspective too, that we are the first generation or the first, this mm. is, sort of like uh, an interesting time in history when this is just um mm. these technological advances are coming into play and we are developing cultural norms and understandings for how to be with them and yeah. what they you know and that maybe in 100 years time or 50 years time even that they're but we are sort of like in the settling kind of percolating what is this and how do we feel about this period yeah, yeah. Um, but i i think it's interesting that you know I think it's something I grapple a lot with, even with my own responses to reading. You know, I read, you know, that there's a, a company who can, uh, you know, a Chinese company who you can um, use in um, when you're developing the um, or designing a funeral for your the person who has died, where they can develop a, um, a hologram that will speak um, as as though the person, sorry, when the person themselves can eulogize themselves. That's <laughs> what I'm trying yeah. to say. but just that sense of like I read things and I go oh that kind of feels funny but I think it's really interesting that like that we don't become slaves to those dualities Mm. between sort of promise and the peril of it of technologies Mm. when it comes to grief but also that there are real dangers and there are real fears and abuses Mm -hmm. and misuses of this material Mm -hmm. I mean Mm -hmm. it's 
there's um uh, the European Parliament at the moment is or they're shortly going to be discussing I think a new uh, regulation around um uh, uh, AI and the use of it um to develop kind of the world's first um you know comprehensive a- AI law and it's around developing an understanding of the risk posed by different forms of AI so like low risk being things like you know email spam filters. Um, and then um, going coming up to things like um, unacceptable risk, but mm-hmm. in, in the there's um, my colleagues in our um, current in my current postdoc, my colleagues in the um, Leverhulme Centre for um, Artificial Intelligence in the University of Cambridge, um, Kasia Bzinska Novacek and Tom Holonek, and they are um, proposing that AI in this um, new regulation that AI based around people who have, or, you know, simulation, um, AI enables simulations of the dead, that they should be designated as uh, high risk. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, because of the potential for misuse. And for example, with, you know, young people, with children is it, one of the examples they use that like, there's no, there's no kind of law or regulation around like AI being developed that then could be um, experienced or encountered or focused at children. And also that, you know, in other instances where, again, the recipients of like if if my data is being used um, after I die to create a, a, a simulation um, uh, based on me and my material, I have no there's no regulation or, yeah. or law that yet. And and also for the recipients, so recipients can receive material and there's no sense of, you know, um, mm. or, or, or consent. Mm. Around that. And mm. I think one step further on to that is like, you know, surely surely there'll be a sense of like companies like taking material on mass and trying to sell simulations and, and bots to people if because there's no sense that you know that there's no regulation around around that yeah um, and this is all before we don't have good digital watermarking systems that identify people's data who have died there's so yeah. much scope at this moment in time for impersonation, for yeah. failures in identity verification, even yeah. identification identity verification using video or audio. We are getting to the point where that can yeah. easily be got around to fool banks or other things that yeah. might be involved in an estate. The privacy of the dead can, uh, or the dead people's data rather, can be used to impinge upon living person's privacy and rights and fortunes because of the way that the data of the deceased remains intimately connected with the data of the living. So there's all sorts of reasons why I think it's absolutely accurate that such things would be, such uses and applications should Mm -hmm. be classified as high risk and should be regulated accordingly because we can't trust the market, as you're saying, uh, to regulate that for us because they have different aims and purposes. But just to wrap up, I was thinking about how um, using different terminology, we often talk about the stages of grief and other sorts of things around grief as models. But essentially what we're talking about, maybe especially when we're talking about stage models, is their algorithms. Mm. You know, and, and so it's it's like an algorithmically uh, driven sort of way of thinking about. So if this, then that, and then this happens, and then that happens, and then that happens. It's mm. easy. It, it, it's easy for us to think about moving through those things. There's a promise in it, as you say. There's a reassurance. There's a predictability to it, yes. and and it's and it's something that lends itself to algorithmic yeah. ways of thinking. Yeah. And, um, and so I think the true algorithm for grief, it's not that there isn't one necessarily, but it's a whole lot messier than that, you know, it's a lot more unique. It's a lot more individual than we think. 
Um, And so, but I suppose part of the era that we're entering now is something where there's fewer blunt one-size-fits-all algorithms and a successive increasingly fine-tuned individualized algorithm that's particular to you and that whole thing about almost sometimes Google or whomever knowing you better than you know yourself because all of your behaviors and actions and reactions have been tracked in ways that allow there to be a much more bespoke response to you. Yes. Yes. Um, And so who knows, maybe we will find that there are companions or guides or allies or helpers or supporters Mm. through grieving that are more deeply and meaningfully and sensitively attuned to us that may be available to us when other like fellow grieving humans aren't or people who didn't know the person or whatever. Maybe there will be artificially intelligence enabled Mm -hmm. entities that are able to accompany us Mm -hmm. and and be of help in various ways through the inevitable process of grieving because there's a quote unquote understanding of us on an Mm -hmm. individual level. um, Yeah. That's which I don't think we're that far off from. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting actually, because it is like hyper bespoke potentially there's a potential for that to be hyper bespoke but also we're within a sort of like commercially driven environment where, we are. you know, and also the sense that like, you know, f- there's an interesting um, paper at the recent conference for our network, DORN, it's called DORS, so Death on- Online Research Network uh, Symposium. Mm-hmm. And somebody um, had a paper on, uh, it was an AI bot that she uh, um, developed and the bot, she was having conversations with the bot about grief uh and she was you know showing snapshots of this conversation it was fascinating and of course because the bot is drawing on like the corpus of information online about the about grief so she was asking it about grief and it was giving her quite normative you know ideas Mm. about what grief involves because it was because that is it's um what is available online a lot of it is based on the first you know the last hundred years of grief theory a lot of which 70 years odd 80 years of it is a lot of about that kind of patho- grief as pathology and he's mm. here's how you get through mm. in stages mm. or tasks or or phases or mm. whatever and that it was sort of the the ai and because it was because it's drawing on that corpus brings back up those ideas so it's just like like that kind of intermingling mm. of like hyper bespoke AI enabled um, ways of, you know, living with grief mm. uh, rather than dealing with or solving, right? So like living with grief through mm. doing, and, and, but then also on, on the bed of our, in a, in a sort of context where we have, it, it is largely companies who are, you know, with a financial motive who are developing this stuff and also with a, in a backdrop of like, what does the internet know about grief, right? You know, yeah. What, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, not that I have the answer to that question. It's really- no, well, but 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 yeah. you know, to, to finish off, of course, last week, mm. OpenAI announced, rolled out this big announcement around making Chat GPTs. Uh, I mean, making GPTs that you can just make it create through conversational language very easily without training. So that, for example, tomorrow, next week, I could sit down and construct very easily a GPT that somebody can go through and use to have a different understanding of their grief process or to think about grieving in a different way to that, just setting it to trauma 
all the internet. There's there's sure. things that are coming that yeah, may sure. serve as a corrective yes. um, or can yeah. serve as a corrective. And so, so mm-hmm. I think that we talk about the perks and the perils, and maybe this is one of the 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 perks that yeah, if we leave it to just kind of trawl and reiterate and reiterate and reiterate. Um, but even now the blog posts you're writing, the things that I'm writing, the things that all of our colleagues are writing, these are things that are going into the corpus too, but Mm, you know, it's, and so it's, um, so I suppose there is hope. I suppose there's hope. I'm really, really happy that you and I had a chance to sit down after way too long and have this (laughs) conversation today. Anything you want to say to finish off? Um, what else do I want to say? Um, yeah, maybe just about that the larger consortium I'm part of. Maybe I should mention that. Yes, so please do. Yeah, so we're um Didi, uh, which is short for digital death, and uh our focus is transforming history, rituals, and afterlife. And we're uh funded by EU Chance, the collaboration of humanities and social sciences in Europe. And yes, yeah, so we're a two two uh, year uh, research program interdisciplinary four countries so Finland UK Romania and Denmark and it's sort of one of the big um, kind of funded projects um, focused on digital death and what it is to um, in in the in the context of Europe specifically and different European countries that I've mentioned um, how digital death is and and digital grief I guess both um, what it is uh, in the context of kind of European history and rituals and practices and how it's fitting into that larger kind of perspective, which I find really fascinating. So yeah, more to come on that. And we'll have a book coming out at the end of our project, which is in 20, December, 2024. So yeah, I keep your eyes peeled for that. <laughs> That's great. I will put the link to those things in the chat. You can give me the links and I will post them up. Um, and such a fascinating collection of countries to be involved in to look at a diversity of rituals and practices there too. So yes. uh, that is that is super exciting research. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. Hopefully this won't be our last conversation on this for this podcast. But um, thank you again, Morna O'Connor, Dr. Morna O'Connor, for uh, the chat today. Oh, Magic. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. I do love a good intellectually stimulating conversation with a close colleague like Morna. Thanks so much to Morna O'Connor for being on the podcast today. Reboot, Reclaiming Your Life in a Tech-Obsessed World, has a chapter in it that's devoted to the topics Morna and I were discussing today. It's chapter nine. It's available in hardback right now, but also worldwide, I believe I'm right in saying, from the 1st of January, 2024, on Audible and audiobooks. So please do check your preferred or audiobook provider uh, to see if Reboot is available where you are. There's also a special price, I believe, right now on the Kindle edition of Reboot. So check it out on Amazon. Looking forward to speaking to you next time.